Hello and welcome to the Nirvana Principles show. I'm your host, Dr. Hassan Malik. Today, I am very lucky to have one of my friends in the studio. Her name's Fatma Hashmi. And we are going to talk today about, I like to call it the psychology of relationships, attachment theory, lots of nerdy stuff, and also maybe figure out uh, why I'm unlucky in love. Right, right, Fatma, that's the agenda today. Why, why we're both unlucky in love. We're both mutual, unlucky. Mu- mutual agreement. Yes, yeah. you could also call it a Lonely Hearts Club. It's, um, yes, exactly. Valentine's Day is spent together. Yeah, yeah. it's a shame. I, Lonely I, Hearts <laughs> yeah, it's it's a shame. I was looking, I was looking f- for like an episode on love or relationships for February, but we only connected recently, um, mm-hmm. and we I think uh, we did share. You know, we we did talk about how we're both working in mental health, and um, yes, but we're both from Karachi, and we've known each other for a while now. More than a decade, I would say. More than yeah. a decade. But it's interesting, like I feel a few of my friends are, are um, either in neurology or in mental health or they're psychiatrists as well. Um, so it's interesting that um, <laughs> I don't know what was the common denominator in the surroundings. Maybe we up. were all, <laughs> we were all like something is brewing in our minds. We yeah. need to figure this out. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, for me, I, I'm, I'm going to be honest, I, I did want to understand people a bit more. But when I grew up, I or when I st- you know, started studying a bit, it was people, but it was also kind of like relationships and mm-hmm. and kind of how, um, what should I say, f- why they're functional or why they're dysfunctional. And I, I know, I mean, sorry, I didn't, um, do you want to wanna say a little bit about your ba- your background? I know that you've, you're, you give, actually give couples therapy as well as family therapy these days. So it's, Firstly, it's really wild that when we connected and you said you're doing this podcast now, it's like, that's crazy because this is exactly what I want to do right now. It's like, I want to share more of this information. So I'm I'm really happy that I'm here. Um, I think for me, I started with biology as a background. Remember, I was telling you that that was where I started. I started with science and research, and then I moved towards mental health specifically because I noticed that there weren't enough like really qualified South Asian therapists. I wanted to be a South Asian therapist because back home, I had a really good therapist. He actually encouraged me to go into therapy. Mm -hmm. So the whole idea was there needs to be more of us. No offense, Hassan, we have enough doctors, okay? (laughs) (laughs) We We need more mental health specialists. And I think the more important thing for me was specializing in relationships. So after I finished grad school and I became a, a, you know, a clinical therapist, my whole objective was really, truly understanding, like your word, I'm stealing anatomy of relationships mm-hmm. and really breaking down like how we come together, why we come together, how we sustain relationships, why we fall apart, the relationship with ourselves. And in couples therapy, family therapy, I've really seen all of these dynamics come together in like really complicated ways. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't think that we talk about this stuff enough in, in our community. I think we just kind of accept the status quo, like, hi, this is it. And then we kind of just go with the wave. We don't ever dissect and try to understand, like, why did I choose this person? Why did they choose me? Mm-hmm. Um, why did I want to date them? You know, we were talking about breakups. Like, why did we choose to start dating that person in the first place, right? 
what made us stay, um, what made us come together, what made it fall apart. We don't really dissect it. We kind of have this narrative of, yeah, it was bad. It It's over now. Let's just move on, you know. I also thought that maybe being a psychiatrist, having the knowledge, it'd be easier to see, to pick apart <laughs> right? the, those yeah. things. But uh, yeah. no, not 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 really. You still no. you would need like a you would need an objective professional view. Oh, a hundred percent. You know, I actually normalize it for my clients when some of them come in and they've done a lot of inner work. Right? They've done the learning their inner selves and emotional intelligence they've built, but then they still end up making mistakes in relationships. And then they come in and they go like, why am I still making these mistakes? Like, I know better. I'm more aware. Why am I still messing up? I'm like, because you can have all the knowledge in the world, but when it comes to your emotions, you have no control. Mm -hmm. Um, Even instinctually, if there's something in you, there's a voice that's saying, you know, this person isn't right for you. I don't think you should be spending this much time with them. Your emotions will come in and go like, but I really care about this person. But this person helped me through so many bad times. I think I should give them the benefit of the doubt. You know, uh, this person was there for me when my parent died. You know, like there's always a narrative. We give it a story as to why we should still continue that experience with them, even though we know this is unhealthy for us. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why attachment plays such a big role. Because it's the way we attach to certain people. And then it feels almost like addictive. Like you can't break out of that attachment. Which is why I feel like relationships are so important to understand. So, I, I mean, do you think just for our conversation, do you think it's good to know what what we mean by attachment as from a mental health viewpoint? I think it'll be easier as, as we go along. We, we do want to talk about, let's say, modern dating and also... Oh, yeah, uh, modern dating. Yeah. And um, but I think it, it'd be interesting to know where our the way I like to see it, I, I'm like much more Freudian or, you know, much more Shakespearean, maybe oh, in, in oh, the way. Father of psych. Huh? Yeah, Freudian. yeah. Yes. Um, emphasis on the father part. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so there's <laughs> <laughs> always some parent involved with Freud. It always has to do yeah, with always, always. But is that like I, I know that, you know, Freud was as a. Uh, kind of my understanding has matured a lot of his theories are basically wrong but the thing was that no one had really (laughs) you're like hey father of psych actually you suck and you're wrong yeah but then but then i'm like so why is that guy so famous you know so so i think it was my own kind of like assumption that you know for someone to be a great thinker they also have to think the right things they it wasn't really the things that he answered it was the questions he raised you know, yeah. that why are we like this? Um, so, yeah. Uh, yeah. And he did have some understanding that there are different stages of development, you know, like, yes. you know, things like oral, yeah. anal and things like that. And it's entered our vocabulary. Like, don't be anal about that. You know, mm-hmm. don't be mm-hmm. very specific. Don't be obsessive compulsive. And well, yeah. he was on the right track, but not everything has to do with <laughs> genitals. You know, <laughs> like, I'm sorry, yeah. it's for Mr. Freud. It's no, it's true. I think like he was really coming at it from a perspective of these, uh, like these inner drives, right? What he called these inner subconscious drives that were functioning from this place of sexual desire towards either our mother or father. Like there's just some kind of sexual motive behind whatever we're doing. And I think that now like as more research has progressed, it's more coming from a place of this void that we feel based off of the love and care we never received. 
it's not really necessarily this sexu- this sexual instinctual drive it's more about like this connection that we missed out on this really important link that we missed out on i think the one thing that he did raise an important question about was that a lot of it starts at childhood which he's right about you know like a lot of the psychologists that came after him they just furthered his research and they took it in a different direction but but he had an idea right that this is all something to do with your inner child and when you're a kid this is what happens and defense mechanisms so i think that everyone else just took that piece of it that yes it starts in childhood and then they kind of took it in different directions and i truly do agree that a lot of this stuff does start in childhood you know all of these links and attachments that we miss out on and we can talk exactly about what attachment is but these really core connections that we all need to develop healthy relationships in life if you don't have that when you're younger it really dictates how you form relationships as an adult it really does in a big way yeah so it's it's kind of like having a template so you know our our yeah. just like our our yeah. mind creates a template of what is normal yeah uh, it gets a bit complicated but yeah but you know we we learn by mirroring like if you see like chil- yeah. if you see like mums with babies they've like yeah. l- like my my niece whenever she like whenever she has a new experience let's say she had like a f- fall you know and then she just looks at her mum and she just looks at her that okay how should i feel about this should i cry yeah yeah should i laugh yeah. and you have this start crying ah! and then you know <laughs> and then my sister is like no no it's okay see and yeah. then she's like yeah. okay it is okay you know it's okay you do fall down sometimes yeah yeah um yeah so man freud was right in something it is always about your mother isn't it so, <laughs> hmm you know that's why i i guess like mental health professionals there are, are they like obsessed about childhood do you think um Oh yeah like you know it's funny whenever a client comes in the first joke they make with me is are you going to go into my childhood is this going to turn into one of those and i'm like you know what eventually it will i'm sorry <laughs> you know like i know i know you don't want to hear this but eventually i will go to your mother i will go to your father or whatever caregiver you had right i am going to go there i'm sorry it's going to happen at some point but you know i do want to point out that not every therapy has to go that deep hmm. if some people hmm. just want to come in and deal with just anxiety skills or whatever it can even just stay at that place and you don't have to go hmm. deeper if you don't want to but my it's funny i give all my clients a little like precursor on the phone they're like listen i i tell them this i'm like listen i'm going to go deep and i'm going to go to your childhood it's going to happen So if you don't like that style just don't work with me because this is this is what's going to happen and then they go like okay naive as hell right yeah. and then we start the process and they're like what the fuck did i sign up for <laughs> I want to just quickly cover maybe attachment styles if you're up for it so i i know Yeah that they're two Okay Hassan let's hear what you know Okay so yeah. i know that there's two major types there's secure and insecure and uh-huh. if there's insecure then there's two subtypes of that which is um anxious or avoidant uh-huh, uh-huh. right okay that's it and, yeah so let's make it very simple for everyone you can put them under different categories but just to make it easy let's say there's four types right mm-hmm. there's the secure type where you got what you needed as a child and you end up developing secure connections with people as you get older then we have the anxious type 
the anxious type is someone who's always like overanalyzing, overthinking, wondering what the other person is thinking, trying to fill the gap all the time, right? Then we have the fearful dismissive and then the fearful avoidant. The fearful dismissive is the one that's like, I don't need relationships. I don't need closeness. They immediately dismiss the idea of connection. A fearful avoidant, however, wants connection, but is so petrified and scared of connection that they want to get rid of that person as soon as the person gets too close. Like, for example, if they're in a romantic relationship, right? The moment a person starts to get really, really close to them, they freak out so much. They're like, okay, bye, peace out, like leave. I, this is too much. This is too much love, too much closeness. I can't handle it. So the difference between, again, between a fearful dismissive and a fearful avoidant is that dismissive is like, I don't need this. I don't want it. I don't need it. Get away. A fearful avoidant is I do want love. I'm aching for connection, but this is too much for me to handle. I'm overwhelmed. So I'm just going to cut the, cut the cord here and get rid of you before you abandon me. Right. So those are the four main ones that you can experience. Another thing I just want to point out is that you can experience different attachments with different people in your life. They are not universal for everyone across the board. If someone oh, says I have all of those like <laughs> Facebook quizzes I did about my attachment style, it's all. Hassan, what did you get? I want to uh, know. Oh, man. Like, I feel I um, to be honest. Can I, I guess? I, you can guess. OK, let's see. Okay, I have a feeling, I I could be wrong, I'll be a th- terrible therapist, but I have a feeling that you might be a fearful avoidant. Like you want the closeness, but you do get a little scared when people get I just get need close. somebody to love. No, um, somebody love. <laughs> I don't remember the last time I took like a quiz or anything, probably because I didn't like the answer. <laughs> <laughs> Denial 101. I feel like I'm yeah. probably like the anxious attachment style. I, mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. I think that's yeah. that's what like resonated yeah. with me. I was like, okay, it's not secure. It's <laughs> <laughs> for sure. But, you know, so, but then which one is it? Yeah. And they can, they can intertwine too, because they're in a way, they're all kind of connected and similar in different ways. There's, there are like, you know, intersectionalities between all of them. Mm. So I think that they all connect to each other in different ways. You can... For, for example, the way I explain it to clients is you can have a very secure, healthy attachment with friends. But with, let's say, a romantic partner, you might have a very avoidant, uh, very avoidant kind of attachment. And maybe with your parents, too, you might have a really avoidant attachment. So, like, it's not the same across the board. It really, It really depends on the people that you're surrounded by, the type of people you're connecting with. And then based off of that, your attachment style will get triggered according to how safe you feel. And this is the the word that I've been using the most in therapy is how emotionally safe you feel with that person will dictate how you attach to them. If you do not feel safe with that person, your immediate instinct will be to survive that experience which will then trigger your childhood attachment style. And then you'll attach to that person in a very similar way, like you did when you were younger. The whole point of this and this, there's a guy, um, there's a guy, there's a professor and, um, you know, he's also like, uh, he has a medical background, but he did a lot of research into trauma. His name is Dr. Gabor Mate. I really enjoy reading his work. He talks about it where He says that you can heal that attachment trauma. It doesn't mean that you have to be stuck in that anxious attachment for the rest of your life. 
you can heal your way out of that attachment. So you can get to a place of secure attachment. And then based off of that, you can then form relationships with other people who might have more of a secure attachment compared to what you were attracting before. Because let's say, and there's another thing that, you know, the science behind it is something people don't talk about enough is that in, you know, unhealthy relationships, typically there's like a whole dopamine system attached to it. There's like this intermittent reinforcement happening. Like anytime, let's say you're in an unhealthy relationship, right? Um, and for instance, that person ignores you for two days. We've all been through that, right? Someone ignoring you for two days. Then they finally respond to your text. You immediately get a reward, a dopamine release. And then your mind goes like, oh my God, this is so exciting. They finally got back to me. And then you confuse that with thinking that you suddenly really like this person a lot. Like all of this anxiety that's building up, you confuse it for liking and loving. And then you tell yourself, oh, I like them so much. You know, like I get so excited every time they text me. What's really happening is that person is creating this like reinforcement. They ignore you, you get a text, then that reinforcement happens over and over again. And there's a reward system going on in your mind. And that is also what plays a part in attachment styles. If you're an anxiously attached person, for example, you will seek out those dopamine rewards so much more because your anxious attachment will be like, are we okay? Are we okay? Does this person like me? They didn't respond to me in two days. I don't think they like me anymore. Maybe I need to like, uh, stalk them on social media and see if they're on social media or if they're just ignoring me. You know, there's like a whole narrative playing in your brain. And then the moment they kind of finally reply back to you, your mind calms down. Your mind gets this signaling that everything's fine. We're okay. They still like us. They still want us in their life. And then we kind of keep seeking that reward over and over and over again based off of that. Is this conscious or is this like an unconscious pattern? I think it's a combination of both. I think there's a subconscious, unconscious drive going on with this, and there's also a conscious drive going on. And I think how it sort of balances itself out is that the conscious mind is so anxious about sitting in this discomfort of, I don't know what our future will be. I don't know if in six months they're going to break up with me. That anxiety is somehow getting stored in your subconscious, and then your subconscious starts stressing you out even more, right? Um you might be, this is what's so funny that people don't realize is that when that anxiety gets stored, it shows up everywhere. You'll be at work, but you'll be sitting in anxiety. You'll mm. be walking and crossing the street, but you'll be more hypervigilant and hyper anxious because now there's this stored anxiety somewhere in the background. It affects every aspect of your life and it shows up. So I think it's a combination of both things coming out at the same time, like in your unconscious mind and in your conscious mind. So again, that's where the dopamine plays a part. Because if that person suddenly messages you out of nowhere while you're feeling anxious and they say, I love you, I was thinking of you, your brain calms down and then you start to associate that person with your calmness. Like, oh, I was anxious this whole week, but they messaged me saying they love me. I feel calm now. Maybe I do love them. They don't realize that that person is the one creating the anxiety in the first place, right? Sounds like cigarettes to me. <laughs> cigarettes know. are gaslighting you, I'm telling you. Cigarettes? Okay, pun intended. Wow. <laughs> wow. Wow. Wow, Fatma. That's, that's one for the books, Hassan admitted. That was funny. <laughs> no, I, I meant like, 
like like you know like smoking is something you kind of get it it won't taste good unless you do it a few times and you get hooked on it then you just it just feels good because you're hooked on it it doesn't it isn't yeah. integrally like yeah. a good um and then the anxiety you feel in between cigarettes is because of that nicotine dependency right mm-hmm. and if you didn't have that nicotine dependency you wouldn't be feeling that anxious but because you have that dependency now your mind is like the only thing that can calm me down is the thing that was destroying me in the first place <laughs> <laughs> sounds like my right? love life that all our love lives all let's be honest okay, that's cool. why we all became therapists and psychiatrists right <laughs> if i can i can i can fix me I can fix me. The I can fix me movement. Yeah. I I feel like once you realize like this functions and then you start studying <laughs> them and then you realize you have a lot of them. <laughs> There there's like so many memes online with that but it said like when you finally understand that you're the fucked up one all along and you're like yep that's like Taylor Swift song right I'm the problem it's me. Yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um okay. Uh, I feel like I want to listen to that song now. I'm the <laughs> No, I can't play Taylor Swift. They'll, they'll kick me out. <laughs> Would they? Let's start. So this is uh, segment two of Nirvana Principles show. What are we calling it? Psychology of attraction. Yeah, let's no. Let's go with the word that you came up with: the anatomy of relationships and attraction. Damn. You know. Let's make it all sciencey. Sciencey. Yeah. Okay. So we are in yeah. the Nirvana Principles show, anatomy of a relationship. I think everyone, if you ever like 
have dated. I think everyone has Googled red flags and everyone yeah, has had some yeah. experience. They're like, okay, that, that, that was yeah, weird, right? That that was weird. Yeah. And, um, you know, some some fare better than others. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about what that is like and what your experiences have been like in as a therapist who works with relationships. Yeah. And yeah. also some, like, interesting stuff. Like, you know, what, what's your take on things like ghosting and um, what's called gaslighting, tra- gaslighting and, and, trauma dumping? Yeah, yeah. A lot of these things just seem like pop psychology to me until I experienced them. And then I was like, <laughs> wow. Yeah. Okay. You're like, this is real, man. This really exists. Um. So tell me, like, I'll, I'll tell you a, a story, okay? So, uh, yeah, yeah. humor me. Yeah, re- yeah, recently, so I've, I just got off a relationship literally like uh, last week. So wounds are still fresh. <laughs> and um, this person seemed really cool. And, you know, we like got along and um, yeah. it, they yeah. seemed like they understood me a lot. And I feel like they had insights, which mm-hmm. um, other people didn't. You know, it's like they they got me. Right. And um, I they really, really get me. Yeah. yeah you see me. Yeah. yeah, and and then, but then you know went to uh, Pakistan recently. You know had like a stressful gig, came back a bit messed up, and then obviously, mm-hmm. you know it's bound to happen. I think I accept that there are fights and things like that in relationships. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. once the fighting started, uh, I think it just started on me wanting to be alone and yeah. being like, okay, dude, this is how I deal. I brood. I'm moody. You know, yes, I sulk yeah. for a little bit and then I'm okay, you know, but I need to yeah. go through that process. But <laughs> the, uh, obviously I'm, uh, this is the anatomy of, the, of Hassan. The basically. anatomy of Hassan relationships. Obviously this is like yeah. one side of the story, but, yeah. um, but I felt like mm-hmm. once that conversation of, of, or I just view it kind of like that boundary being put, I saw a lot of hate mm-hmm. towards me and I saw like it got, pretty out of hand it was quite vicious and i yeah, was like yeah like how, i'm like how can you be so upset at this you know just like a normal <laughs> just thing yeah. i just i don't yeah. want to see anyone it's nothing personal uh but then it just and i you know obviously I, I can't act naive like i'm not a psychiatrist or that part of my brain is not there even in even yeah. in the yeah. even in my personal relationships yeah. yeah i was like dude this is some like serious trauma that's like coming up and I don't mm-hmm. think that this is against me. This is against like every person who's ever hurt them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think you were talking, we were talking off air in, in the break about kind of abandonment wounds. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so why, 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 why does that happen? Why, why do you think that it's when, um, or maybe, maybe a better question would be, what is what is the toll of uh, relationship trauma on as as we progress on our relationships? Like, what what yeah. does a bad experience cause? I I think that we wear like trauma like a skin in a sense where every time we've had a shitty experience, we tend to bring that into the next experience. And, you know, it's funny because, like, we were talking about this even before that, you know, we were both going through recent breakups. Percy Hassan, I'm sorry. Man, broken hearts club, right? Thanks, I'm really thanks. sorry you went through that, through that experience. Yeah, thank you. Um, I'm, I'm so glad will... that's just us sharing this. <laughs> <laughs> no one else will ever no hear No one else this, will right? ever hear the story, yeah. 
Yeah. But uh, what I was thinking about was like when I in between my two breakups, I remember that I had gone to therapy. I had done all the inner work in the world. I became like this person who thought that nothing can break me. I'm so aware. I'm so woke as the Gen Zers say it. And like, I will just go into this relationship and there'll be no mistakes, no fuck ups. I'll be a great communicator. Right. But that went to hell immediately because I forgot that there's another person in that experience that's bringing their traumas, their previous relational experiences, their anxieties, their stressors into that mix too. And I have no control over how they are regulating their triggers. What I mean by that is when they get triggered, how do they deal with it? Do they take it out? Do they externalize it and throw it onto me? Or do are they aware enough where they know what their trigger is and they deal with it and then they communicate with me later on about it in a healthy way that, hey, in the moment this happened to me and I don't want to do that to you and let's talk about it, right? To me, what you're describing sounds like this person was triggered. They didn't know how to cope with that trigger. So what happened was they externalized it and took it out on you, you know? And instead of recognizing that maybe this is coming from some kind of abandonment wound for me, where I'm so afraid of abandonment, that Hassan being busy for a few days or wanting me to not be around might be making me feel really like, oh, he's going to leave me or he doesn't want me around anymore or he doesn't want to be with me anymore. Instead of recognizing that deeper story, it became how you were the bad guy in that situation for having a boundary or a need. Also, like what I think is amazing is the fact that, for instance, you and I even know what boundaries and needs are. You know, I work with couples and individuals and a lot of times, even people who've been married for like seven plus years, I'll, I'll straight up ask them in session, do you know what your needs are? They're like, what the hell is a need? <laughs> I'm not even joking. These people have straight up been like, what's a need? And one husband, especially in a session went like, I've never had needs. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You have needs. You just don't know what the language is for those needs. And um, a lot of people aren't even aware of their boundaries. So when someone is setting a boundary for the first time with them, and they have no experience with boundaries, they like really get caught off guard. They're like, this is new. No one's ever done this with me before. But here's the, the part that I think gets really complicated where people like really mess and fuck this up. When they see the other person suffering, they decide it's their job to fix it. Oh, they don't know their boundaries. Let me help them. They don't know this. Let me teach them. They don't know that. Let me fix it. We go into that savior complex of, they haven't done the inner work, but I have. So let me fix them. You know, let me jump in and do something about it because I'm more aware. I have more emotional intelligence, so I should jump in. But we're taking away the ability for that person to go get help themselves, do the inner work, figure it out, understand their traumas and triggers. So they stop doing that to you. They stop projecting what I mean by projecting is like taking it out on you. So what what does like, uh, I know people say boundaries and uh, um, my understanding is basically it's uh, it's around like time and space. It's what I mm-hmm. or any individual wants to do with their time or where they want to do it. Mm-hmm. But, but then what what's like, is there a better way to look at it? I mean, you, you can't, I mean, some people do say it like, okay, Hassan, this is my boundary. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I cannot share more than two fries with you okay <laughs> any more than that and things things will get serious world war three like i i feel there's like sometimes there's no-go areas so there, like uh, like the way i see it is there's a, there's a boundary but there's also like a rigidity 
Yeah, that's that's a very interesting point because one of my clients actually mentioned this to me later. She's like, if we all have too many boundaries, aren't we just cutting people out? And I kind of explained it to her in a really simple way of boundaries are a way to build deeper, more meaningful, vulnerable connection, not a way for you to get rid of connection. The The way that I sort of describe a boundary and a need to people in therapy is that think of it as the all the things and the criteria that makes you feel the most safe and emotionally safe with that person in front of you. You feel the most heard, seen, and understood by that person so you can show up more authentically as yourself. It's really hard to be authentic in front of a person if you feel like they don't respect your needs and your boundaries. Because this is when that statement comes up, right? When people say, I'm walking on eggshells around this person because I don't like something that they did, but I don't want to bring it up because I'm afraid they're going to get mad. Now, you're, what you're basically describing is I don't feel safe enough to bring up this issue with them because they're going to attack me or they're going to blow up. That's you saying, I can't even be my authentic self in this relationship, right? Yeah. I'm having to like mold myself or change myself or control parts of me so that we don't fight or we don't have conflicts. The idea, the one thing I want people to remove out of their minds is that conflict never happens. That's not true. Every relationship in your life will have some kind of a conflict. When it's problematic is when it feels like a war every time you have that conflict. When it feels like you literally got out of a battle and you're drained as hell and there was no resolve, that's when it's not healthy. But there will be conflict no matter what. You will disagree, right? Disagreements are common. And that's why I was saying to you earlier that it's important to understand what your triggers are so that you're not taking it out on the person in front of you. And that's why we have boundaries and needs. Like, Mm -hmm. hey, I I see you're triggered. My boundary is please don't take it out on me because it shakes me up or makes me scared, Mm -hmm. you know? So -hmm. can you figure your stuff out so that we can feel more connected? We can feel closer. That is what a boundary and need does. It actually brings you closer to the person that you're with, not drives you far apart. Bringing, Bringing it back to the point that you made earlier about like, you know, when you're dating someone and you're on these apps, what to look out for. It's funny because like there's so many lists online now, like you have TikTok and Instagram and people are listing things like look out for this, look out for that, don't do this, don't do that. I think the one part that's missing in all of this is that human discernment. Like you have to use your better judgment when you're meeting someone and decide like, okay, does this apply in this situation? Instead of jumping the the gun, seeing someone and going like, oh, they they met two of the points in the list of red flags, so F off, I'm never going to see you again, right? And that is where like I, I guide some people and I go like, stop doing this very extreme thing about these are the traits and I'm going to be hell bent on looking out for these specific traits. Have like some grace for yourself and also the human in front of you. And the one thing that I will, I don't know if you agree with this, but the thing that I've realized is in the beginning, typically people who are more like, let's say, narcissistic or harmful or abusive, they're very charming in the beginning. They know exactly what to say. They know all the right things to say. You will express boundaries in the beginning. They'll be super nice about it and follow it. You'll express like all your emotional intelligence. They'll match your emotional intelligence because they mirror and reflect that back. They tell you exactly what you want to know in that moment. 
So, I mean, in a sense, aren't they meeting all the criteria? They're meeting all the green flags. Like, yes, they're doing this right. They're communicating. They're being open. They're being understanding. But then halfway through the relationship, you start to see some of the harmful signs where they're like their actions are not meeting their words. So the one thing that I told a client of mine very recently who is in this dating sphere right now, I was like, give it time firstly. And secondly, notice if whatever they're telling you, the way that they're showing up in life is matching that. The way that they're showing up with their friends, the way that they're showing up at work, the way that they're showing up as a person with you, are those words matching their actions? For example, if they tell you something like, you know, I'm not the type of person who's rude to like wait staff or servers because, you know, they work so hard. But then let's say you're at a restaurant with them and you see them act like really, uh, you know, like like a month in, you see them like consistently be really mean to people in, in the restaurants or cafes. Right. And I don't mean a one off. Right. Because he- hear me out, people like don't base your judgment off one offs. Right. But if they consistently you're noticing a pattern that no matter what they're always really rude to wait staff that's when you need to use your better judgment and go like hey i don't think their actions are aligning with their words you know i think they're actually behaving like a very different person here the really scary part about dating right now and i think this is why everyone's so afraid is everyone knows the right shit to say everyone knows what the fuck to say because they have access to so much information now online Everyone's seeing these red flags. Everyone's seeing these green flags. So people might be saying exactly what you want to hear. People might even be faking emotional intelligence. I've even seen that. So it's very important over time. Firstly, always take it slow, right? Take it at a pace. If you're noticing someone's really speeding things up, slow it down with them. And the second thing is really pay attention to if the actions are aligning with their words, Over time, notice for patterns, like are their actions consistently meeting their words? If they're not, then that is something to look out for. Okay, so we just talked a lot. I think we should take a break and let people take a break from relationships and breakups. So let them listen to some fun music and we'll be back. Bollywood scene, right? When everyone comes in and the knight in shining armor rescues you from like the really shitty family you have, and then you kind of ride off into the sunset, and you're like, "Excuse me, there's there's this also there's also a villain fight unnecessarily where the hero knows (laughs) knows karate out of nowhere." 
literally has like the matrix movie downloaded all these like martial arts yeah, moves yeah, yeah. it's and the power of love like the, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. the most prolific fighter you've ever seen in the village and you're like how the hell did you learn all of this overnight but that, okay that, cool. like one snare yeah. sound dash, dash. and you know what my favorite part is like when they've they've disappeared into the sunset no one knows what the fuck happened after that right like now they've lived happily ever after but no one knows what their married life looks like like if they're okay if they're happy if they're harmful like no one fucking knows which is why like we're here Hassan to like tell people how to fill the gap I, right? I don't I don't know about you I'd be very happy with Shah Rukh Khan you know <laughs> <laughs> speak for yourself like, uh, oh, well, yeah yeah in the beginning of any new experience or relationship or dating everyone gets excited right because let's be honest we're all lonely sad fucks and we want to figure out like is this person the one right and there is a lot of excitement the excitement is not the problem the problem is like particularly in harmful abusive relationships is when people are showing you a version of themselves that they think will make you fall very deeply in love with them if they're showing you like for example if you tell them something like this is my favorite band i've loved them since i was a kid and they buy tickets on a whim for you and go like let's go here now yes as a one off experience that might be really sweet right that's generous it's a kind gesture but pay attention to if that starts happening excessively all the time like week 1 you are the most smart person i've ever met in my life i've never met anyone like you you are the most beautiful thing i've ever seen on this planet i don't think i've ever met a more beautiful woman than you and this is week 1 right you've barely known each other you've had two three dates and now they're giving you the love that you've never received and this is what um this uh, person that i followed dr ramani thrusala she specializes in narcissistic abuse she talks about this really well that it almost feels like the love you never received when you were a child this person is giving you all of it in two weeks like they're just like giving you all the love making you feel so validated how, making you feel how, so how do they know what the greatest hits are is it just the same <laughs> i think because you know and this is what's so tricky is that you know interestingly enough narcissistic people know how to read people really well they know what your insecurities are they know what the where the gaps are they know what the voids are and they know that if they say this stuff to you it will make you feel very very loved by them yeah i, so, I also want to sorry i just want to also clarify i feel like sometimes the vernacular is a bit um yeah, confusing yeah. just like we're we're talking about narcissistic personality traits we're using that as an adjective describe a, a range of behaviors yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. but narcissistic yeah. personality disorder is specifically like a clinical Yes, syndrome yes, that's that a, a diagnosis on, yeah that is a full on personality clinical diagnosis yeah we're, we're yeah. using it kind of like descriptively uh, yeah. to describe yeah. certain traits yeah sorry go yeah. on let's just even remove the narcissism for a second but let's say someone let's just call someone who's like emotionally abusive like just to give someone um a quick idea of what that is there's a difference between physical and emotional abuse and emotional abuse is where this entire process happens of love bombing gaslighting um devaluing you as a person and then discarding eventually this is a very natural cycle that happens in abusive relationships and the what i'm describing is the immediate start of what an emotionally abusive relationship looks like 
Um, and then when they're kind of giving you all this love that you would never, you know, your mind will always tell you somewhere in the back that this is too good to be true. How is it that every part of me, every void that I feel is being so filled by this person? How is it that week one, month one, we're feeling like you're on cloud nine because this person is giving you everything that you ever desired, everything that you ever needed. They And then over time, you'll notice that suddenly those behaviors are changing. This is where it gets really interesting. That person will slowly start to introduce like things like gaslighting. What gaslighting means is when they basically disprove your reality and choose your reality for you in a sense or tell you what your reality is. Um, the way that I can explain that is, for example, Hassan, I give you my car keys, right? And I go like, Hassan, here, hold my car keys. I'll be right back. I come back and you look at me and you go like, I'm like, can I have my car keys? What car keys? I never, you never gave me any car keys. What are you talking about? That never happened. And then I'm like, oh shit, maybe I'm forgetting. Oh yeah, maybe I didn't give them to Hassan. Mm -hmm. That is an example of what gaslighting looks like. You know, when you tell a person what their reality is, instead mm -hmm. of like them feeling safe enough to know what their reality is. Yeah, so like this in, is in, invalidating your emotions. Like, why are you angry? Yeah, you know? exactly. Or why is that upsetting? Uh, yeah, exactly. And you know what the really interesting part with uh, these abusive relationships is that the same things that they judge you for reacting to, they will have the biggest reaction to those exact same things. For example, if they, um, let's say, Hassan, you get mad that someone didn't text you within two, three hours, right? You're like, hey, I was worried about you. You didn't text me in two, three hours. I got concerned. They'll be like, chill, man. Like, why are you freaking out? It's not a big deal. Now, flip that around. When that happens to them, they will blow up. They will have a big rage reaction, you know? Like, how could you do this to me? How dare you? Do you not care? I don't think you love me anymore, you know? Like, the same rules do not apply to them as they do to you. And you'll start noticing that over time, that why is it that when I do this stuff, there's this big reaction, but when they do it, somehow I'm supposed to just deal with it, you know? So again, there's like a lot of like different layers of gaslighting that happen in these harmful relationships. So like to, again, talk about the progression of it, we start with the love bombing. You've kind of been like, oh, wow, this is the love I've never received. This is the most amazing thing I'm ever experiencing then you'll start to notice that that person is changing. All the things they were doing before, they're not doing anymore. So let's say you talked for an hour on the phone, right? When they were love bombing you and they were like really present emotionally. Now notice over time that will change when you call them and you'll try to have a similar conversation. They'll be like, I'm busy, I'm tired. Why are you so needy? Why do you always need to talk on the phone? So it feels like two different people, like versus the person who was love bombing you versus the person now, it literally feels like two different people. And the interesting part is that people will justify the love bombing phase as a way to continue to stay in those relationships. Mm -hmm. They'll be like, oh, he's just having or she's having a bad week. You know, they were so loving to me month one. It's fine. It's fine. They'll get back to that. They'll get back to that. They're just having a bad time right now. That's when they start to what we call um, in abusive relationships, the devaluing phase, where they subtly start to manipulate 
manipulate you, break down your character, and then start to like Loki try to um you know take your insecurities and start to criticize you for them. And you know what's crazy about this is that sometimes it's so subtle you don't even realize it's happening. And that's why a lot of my clients couldn't tell right away that that's what was going on. They're like, but they're just looking out for me. I'm like, no, they're not. They're actually trying to break you down. They're trying to bring your character down. They're trying to harm you. And it takes a really long time for pe- for people to understand that that's what's really truly going on is that this person is starting to break you down as a person. You know, um one of the most common statements i hear is that my my client will say something like i used to be so confident in the beginning of this relationship and now i feel like i'm so insecure in my body i don't like the way i look i don't even feel like i'm that smart anymore it's because th- there's this very subtle like really hidden way that this person starts to really break you down and make you feel like a really really crappy shitty person that's when you start to notice that whoever you were before is like now changing and this is when they start to really amp up the devaluing like really trying to break you down bring you down and then they'll start what we call the discard phase and that's exactly what the word means that's exactly it they start to discard you which is they'll stop talking to you as much they might give you more silent treatments they may not want to be around you as much and then eventually they'll tell you yeah i don't think this is working for me anymore and i want to break up you know and that is the part where the person who is in that relationship and i've seen this completely breaks down this is when a lot of people come to therapy and go like what the hell happened what did i do they internalize a lot of that blame and they go like it's me i wasn't good enough i stopped taking care of myself they you know they were like just trying to help me but i wasn't good enough there's a lot of internalized blame and shame that people come in with and i have to like really talk them through what just happened to them the abuse cycle so they understand that it had nothing to do with them you know why is this happening now like why why are the has like ghosting and this kind of like abusive relationship cycle which you described is it just that we now have i don't know more shared knowledge of patterns across dating apps and you know there's more yeah. digitized and there's more information so now we're yeah. detecting the patterns yeah. or is this just a consequence of the society that we're living in and the age that we're living in i honestly think that we have been everyone like even the generations before us right like we're the boomers and even the generation before them ha- every single person has experienced some kind of emotional harm or abuse in some capacity whether it's work employers whether it's friendships whether it's relationships some kind of degree of exposure has happened we now finally have the research and the language to support and back that up one of the uh, one of my older clients that i see right now she's been in an emotionally abusive relationship for 20 years she's only now just seeing it and getting out of it for the first time like she's getting a, a separation now so it's not like these relationships and dynamics didn't exist before we just didn't have the lingo the language for it and we didn't have enough research supporting it now in recent times especially these abusive and harmful relationships we have way more data on it we have way more research and understanding on it and we recognize these patterns a lot a lot better than we did before it's not that you know sometimes my friends even go like 
why is it that now we have all these fancy names and terms and like gaslighting and love bombing? Like, is it just because we're like creating more problems? I'm like, no, it's because if we don't give these things a word, we are invalidating entire generation and people's worth of experience of abuse that they have been through. And this is especially true for South Asian people because abuse cycles in South Asian communities is deeply prevalent, deeply, deeply prevalent. And it's something that we never name and we don't ever talk about it. And what's really scary too is that oftentimes in our communities, especially people don't even know they're in abusive relationships. They've been in those relationships for 10 years, 20 years. They've kind of just accepted it as like, well, this is just how this person is. So they've learned to live around the abuse, you know, but that doesn't mean that the abuse doesn't exist or it hasn't been there the whole time. I feel like we're um, probably like re reaching the end of our recording time as well. Just, I no, Hassan, the party's over. Oh, I'm no. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> I want you to talk about a healthy relationship as well. Yes. Um, so what is <laughs> We talked all the negative. Let's yeah, talk about yeah. the good stuff. Yeah. So so how how do, how do I know if something's a real deal? I mean, honestly, I think that it's something that you can never know day 1 month 1. Um I I know that that's stuff that people don't want to hear because they're like what if I'm too invested by month 1 and I'm like that's part of the discomfort of taking a risk, right? Whenever you're meeting someone or dating someone. That's just a part of the risk of when you're starting to form a relationship. But here's what I can say is that when you and, and I'm going to bring the body into this because it's very, very important to know that your body plays a really big part in how you're feeling in that relationship with that person. If you're constantly on edge, if you feel like you have to conceal information, if you feel like you can't show up as yourself. If you feel like if you set a boundary and this person will blow up at you over and over and over again. If you feel like you constantly have to justify that other person's shitty behavior. Um, if you feel like you can't like just experience true genuine joy where you just let go of all fear and just be in that present moment with them because you're always thinking about what bad thing is going to happen next. Then there is something very wrong with the relationship you're in. Because a healthy relationship right and i hope this is universal and applies to all people and cultures a healthy relationship is where you truly feel heard understood believed i would say believed is a really big one because this is where people will gaslight each other a lot and say you're just making this up or you're being sensitive or you're blowing this out of proportion but believing a person when they tell you something and when you feel safe with them to show up as your authentic self that typically means that you are in a very healthy, respectful relationship. This does not mean, like I, like I told you before, this does not mean you won't have disagreements. This does not mean that you won't have to compromise on certain things. Um, this does not mean that one day, you know, you might not blow up at each other. All this means is that you feel safe enough to blow up knowing that you both will find some kind of resolve at the end of it, repair that situation and come to the other side of that storm and work together like a team. Like you don't look at each other like competition. You don't look at each other like, you know, the enemy, but you look at each other like it's you and me against this storm, you know, 
it's not me versus you. It's not you versus me. It's me and you together as a team. And we're working through whatever shit life brings, whatever trauma life throws at us, whatever triggers we both experience, we're in it together. I have your back, you have my back. What codependency looks like is when you're too dependent and very much relying on that person to fulfill a lot of the the roles that someone in your life could not fulfill for you, you know? Like if you needed a loving parent and you're expecting your partner to fulfill that, if you needed a loving support system when you were younger and you didn't get it and now you're expecting your partner to fulfill that, that's where we're entering a lot of like codependent territory. Um, the best way I kind of explain it to my clients, especially couples, is that you do your inner work, um, they do their inner work, and you both come together and bring your, not even 50%, 100% towards one another. You go like, hey man, my responsibility is me, my accountability is me, I will go process my shit, figure my stuff out, and I will show up as in the best way I can towards you, and the other person does the exact same thing. No, like 50%, 30%, it's 100%. I'm going to show up in the best way I can towards you. And if there are times in life, because everyone goes through stuff, right? Grief, trauma, whatever. And one person cannot give that 100%. The other person steps up and goes like, hey, you need me to step up more. I'll do it because I know that in future, if this were me, you would do that for me. There's this like almost like equity between two people where I have your back. I know you need me right now more, but there will be a time where I'll need you more and I know you'll show up. You won't just leave or abandon, but you'll be there. There's that safety of knowing that I have your back and you have my back. And communication is more open. It's more transparent. You express your needs openly. You express your boundaries openly. You express your values very openly. You align on some of those values. You compromise on the ones you can't compromise on. Hmm. I mean, if you're compromising on, on something and you are building this resentment and anger, that's not a sign of a healthy relationship, you know? So it's also important to remember that you might be doing all the things right, but if you're building up all this hate and negativity towards the other person, then something is not right either. Because maybe mm -hmm. the communication is off. Maybe you're not feeling heard, seen, or understood. Maybe that intimacy is missing. Everyone needs close intimacy in a relationship. So I feel like if some of these factors are missing, then yes, you're not overall in a healthy dynamic. And that's when people come to couples therapy because we work on some of this individual stuff. I think we could keep talking about how relationships suck or maybe also about how we can make them better. Uh, but uh, that's all the time we have today. I just want to say thank you for sharing your expertise. And also, I, f I feel like I've been in some relationship therapy today. So thank you for listening to me as well. Hasan, I've learned the most from you in this podcast. So I think I should thank you more than anything. So this is goodbye from the Nirvana Principles show from both myself and Fatma. We'll be back soon. And in the meantime, if you want to check out this show, the extended cut is out on Spotify. See you later.